Well, we're going to enjoy God's word together, and then we're going to move from there into our time around the Lord's table today. And I've just been praying for God to give us a special time in his word. So I'll invite you to join me, church family, in John chapter 3 this morning. Fourth book of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke. Then comes the Gospel of John, chapter 3. If you need a Bible today, just let us know, and Dennis will be glad to share a copy of God's Word with you. There's a note page as well in your bulletin if you would find that, and that will be helpful along the way. And if you'll do us all a favor and silence that phone, if that hasn't happened, that would be wonderful. So let me begin by sharing with you a true story that ran in the Florida Sun Sentinel newspaper. Here was the headline, Woman Survives Ninth Floor Fall. Yeah, whoa is right. (laughs) Now we read that or we hear that and we think, yeah, right. How in the world is that going to happen? It just sounds impossible. But it happened. It actually happened. The person who fell, her name was Gloria, and she was not a stunt woman. She was a 70-year-old lady. She was out on the balcony of her upscale high-rise condo building in Coral Ridge, and she was doing some cleaning when she lost her balance and toppled over the railing. Now, maybe Gloria was just a neat freak. It didn't say this in the paper, but... Maybe she was. She just couldn't abide that spider web that was down low there on the, the railing. And she's reaching over to, to take care of that. And whoop, man, she goes over the side. She falls almost 100 feet. And if you do the physics, she's falling at 50 miles an hour at impact. Instant death for sure, right? Wrong, wrong. She survives, and and here's how she survives. Directly under her balcony on the ground floor, there was an awning that came out from the building and covered the entryway into the building. Gloria just happened to land in the exact center of that awning. Missing the metal framing and all of that stuff, she hits it, and the awning collapses all around her, decelerating her fall, and and it just kind of cradles her, and she comes to rest just a few inches off of the pavement. (laughs) I'm not making this up. This really happened. She walks away from this completely unscathed. Now, how does someone survive such a deadly fall as that? Well, you could say Jesus. I'm sure she's saying Jesus, right? No, no, no. There has to be a perfect catch, right? It has to be a perfect catch. Everything must be in place for that to happen and for that outcome to be the result. It has to be a perfect catch or she dies. Church family, this morning, we're going to think about another fall. Your fall. My fall. We are all falling. Careening towards eternity. Towards a moment when we are going to step out of this life. And we are going to stand before God. Holy. Sinless. Perfect. Infinitely powerful. 
just, the creator of all things, and we are falling as fragile, unholy, sinful, imperfect men, women, and young people. We are falling towards him. Now, just in case you hadn't noticed this before, we are all flawed, right? (laughs) You are, I am, we are flawed. We are imperfect. G.K. Chesterton, writing in the early 1900s, said, The sin nature of man is the only religious doctrine that can be scientifically, empirically verified. All you have to do is observe people. (laughs) Romans 3.23 puts it this way. For all have sinned and what? Fall short of the glory of God, the holiness of God, the perfect God. Every single person on the planet right now is a sinner and therefore in grave danger of a deadly fall. A fall that is not just for time, but is for eternity. Romans 6.23 puts it this way. For the wages of sin is death. Death. And that word death there means physical death, yes, as a consequence of sin. But way more important, that word means, means eternal death, spiritual death, separated from a holy God forever in a place of unspeakable anguish and unending darkness that we call hell. And so it is and should be a strong, sobering reality to consider that we are all fallen and we are all falling towards eternity now if that was the end of the story it would be a tragic ending wouldn't it but it's not the end of the story today we get to think together about the perfect catch the most perfect catch of all the catches in the history of the universe and we get to do that this morning church family as we return to the Gospel of John and our study series, Jesus, Know Him and Believe, as we come today to John chapter 3, verses 16 to 21. Here's how it reads in our Bibles. This is out of the English Standard Version. That's where I'll be reading from. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. And we'll stop right there. Holy Spirit, may you be pleased to impart your truth to us today so that not one of us walks out of this building the same. 
the same way that we walked in. We walk out different because of the time we spent in the word. Amen and amen. Now, last time when I was not here, Rob introduced us to the third chapter of John where Jesus is paid a visit under the cover of darkness by one of Israel's most esteemed spiritual leaders, a man by the name of Nicodemus. Nicodemus is intensely interested in trying to better understand who Jesus is and what his message is. He's performing miracles and he's preaching the kingdom of God and he's attracting such a large, large following that, that he, he simply cannot be ignored. And so Nicodemus comes secretly in, at night to, to see what he might learn about this man, Jesus, and, and his message. Nicodemus, if you know anything about him, he's, he, he grew up his whole life in Judaism with the conviction that if you do the rules of religious performance, then you earn your place in heaven. Good works get you to God. It's what he believed. It's what he taught. It's all he'd ever known. Jesus goes straight to that issue. He doesn't even give Nicodemus a chance to ask a question, at least one that is recorded by John. Jesus says to him in verse 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, Nicodemus, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless you're born again, you don't go to heaven. You will not see God unless you're reborn spiritually. And so Jesus then goes on to explain that unless one comes to God in brokenness over sin and repents and has their heart remade by the working of the Holy Spirit, heaven will always be out of reach. And this blew Nicodemus away causing him to exclaim in verse 9, if you look in your Bible, he says, how can these things be? How in the world can that be? I've never heard that before. Verse 13, Jesus says to him, you want to know who I am? Well, I have come down from heaven. I am heaven sent. And for this purpose, verse 14, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. Jesus takes this learned teacher of Israel to a place that He knew well from the Old Testament writings, the book of Numbers, chapter 21. There, the people of ancient Israel, if you know this this moment out of Israel's history, They were complaining. The people were complaining bitterly against God despite his faithful provision for them at every turn. And as a judgment for this grievous sin of ingratitude, poisonous snakes descended on the camp of Israel as they were out in the wilderness. People were dying from the venomous bites. And God instructs Moses to make a bronze replica of a snake and raise it up above the camp on a pole. And those who were bitten would be healed of the venomous bite if they would only look at that venomous, at that snake on the pole, acknowledging their guilt, their sin, their their sin of ingratitude, expressing their faith in in God's words, His solution to their to their dying, receiving forgiveness and healing with a look of faith. The point Jesus is making was that just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. Even so, he would be lifted up 
on a cross. The term must in verse 14 should be circled in your Bible, emphasizing that Jesus' death was a necessary and essential part of God's plan of salvation. The stricken Israelites were were, were cured by obediently looking apart from any works of righteousness that they might try to do, looking only in hope and dependence on, on what God had said, this is the solution to your deadly problem. And in the same way, whoever looks in faith alone to the crucified Jesus is cured from sin's deadly bite and will in him have eternal life. Eternal life. This is the first of 15 references in John's gospel to this important term. First time we, we, we come upon it. For Jesus, eternal life is the reward of simple saving faith in himself. It's the believer's participation in the everlasting life that he is. He is everlasting life. Amen? Faith in his death and resurrection joins us to his life. In chapter 1, we learned back a few weeks ago, in chapter 1, verse 4, that Jesus is life. In him is life, right? You remember that? And believers will most fully experience this life in the perfect, unending glory and joy of heaven with God, with Jesus forever. We call it eternal life. And all of that then brings us now to John chapter 3 and verse 16. I was watching a little bit of football last night, um, Ohio, Ohio State and Wisconsin, and the camera shot through as a field goal was about to be made, and guess what was sitting right in the back behind the field goal? Big poster, and it said John 316. Yeah. It's a great way to bring the word into that space. Well, Jesus doesn't even give Nicodemus a chance to catch his breath. And absorb the implications of what he said in verses 14 and 15. He keeps right on going. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Amen. Yes. It's been called the golden text. Martin Luther, the great reformer, called it the heart of the Bible. Because it so powerfully displays the heart of God. The heart that he has for sinners. I would call it the perfect catch. And it's not hard to see why John 3.16 is one of the most famous, most often memorized, most cherished verses in the Bible. It may be your, your life verse this morning. Packed into this verse are the greatest realities that exist God love the world the son of God giving believing perishing forever living forever whoever these are the greatest realities in the universe are they not they really are I mean, what could be more important that one, than what is said in verse 16 of John 3? What could be more relevant to anyone's life and future right now than John 3.16? Could there be anything more important 
What could be more urgent for anyone, more momentous for anyone to know than the truth of John 3.16? Where you stand in relationship to God through Jesus. God loves the world, this verse says. He loves the great totality of fallen, sinful human beings. That's the word world. It's not talking about the ball we live on. It's talking about the totality of fallen, sinful human beings. And he loves them. We should say loves us, right? He loves us. Make it, make it personal. And he loves us with such an intensity and to such a magnificent degree that, degree that he has moved to, to send himself into this world in the person of his own son, Jesus. And he sends him to die for the world of sinners. God's motive for giving the world Jesus is what? It's love, isn't it? Love moved him to love this evil, sinful world of fallen humanity. He loves us. Boy, if you just linger on that for a moment, that is an amazing statement. He loves us. As noted at the outset, all of humanity is is utterly sinful, completely lost and unable to save itself by any ceremony or religious religious practice or self-effort. In other words, there's nothing in us that attracts God's love. Because we are what? Sinners. Rather, he loves us because he sovereignly chooses to do so. He wants to do this. The plan of salvation flows out of who he is, not what we are, but who he is. Any doubts about that? Check this out. Titus chapter 3, verses 3 through 6. For we ourselves, it's a great description of us. We were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the kindness, but the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, not because of anything in us, right? But according to His own what? His own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. His his loving kindness moved Him to do this. Here's Romans 5.8. God shows his love for us in this. While we were, what? Sinners, still sinners, Christ died for us. Not once we got our act together. Thank the Lord. Oh, absolutely. Thank the Lord. And and how about 1 John 4, 10 and 19? In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. And sent his son to be the propitiation, the payment price for our sins. We love because he first loved us. Maria included that in her prayer. Did you, hear, did you notice that? That's how she ended her prayer this morning before the, at, at the offering time. We love you because you first loved us. You first loved us. 
The clear purpose and effect of this love from God and this giving of his son for us is that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. In other words, this love opens a a very real door that would otherwise remain closed forever so that anyone, do you get that? Anyone who believes on Jesus will gain eternal life. Whoever, there's no qualifiers with that. There's no restrictors. Whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. We may therefore say to any and every human being, brothers and sisters, we can say this to anybody on the planet right this moment, God loves you. We can say that. And this is how he loves you. He gave his son to die. So that if you will believe, your sins will be forgiven. You will have eternal life. This is what the love of God means and promises and what it does in John 3.16. And that's why this verse has has, has been so amazingly blessed by God over the centuries in bringing people to Jesus, to the place of salvation. Verse 16 expresses about as simply as it can be said what is sometimes referred to as the free offer of the gospel. This is free. This is free. Eternal life is free. There are no limits to the offer. It goes out to all people, to every ethnic group, to every person, no matter their age, to every socioeconomic category, and best of all, to every degree of sinner. This truth goes out. From the ones who are trying to be good and can't be, to the ones who are doing their very best to be evil and treacherous. This offer goes out. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever, no qualifiers, no restrictions, believes in him, should not perish but have eternal life. We say amen and amen. There really are no words in the human language that can adequately express the magnitude of God's saving gift to the world. His perfect catch. In fact, even the Apostle Paul came up with with only this as a way to express his own thoughts. 2 Corinthians 9.15 Thanks be to God for his what? His indescribable gift. You can't describe it. Now, if you flip your note page over, church family, this, this love of God for sinners, for the world is even larger than what Jesus reveals here in verse 16. Brothers and sisters, why do any of us ever come to faith in Jesus Christ? Why does that happen? Why do any of us receive Jesus as the the supreme treasure of our life? Why do we want him? The answer is because there is a love from God that is even greater than the love of God. Of John 3.16. The love of John 3.16 is truly amazing. Please don't get me wrong. The gift of Jesus to the world. So that the free offer of eternal life goes out to everyone. Whoever. That's an astounding love. On God's part. 
Believe and you will be saved. Believe and your sins will be forgiven. God's wrath will be removed. You will have eternal joy with him if you believe. What love goes with that offer? But there's another love of God. And it goes beyond offering eternal life to an unbelieving world. And it actually creates that life in your heart. If we only know the love of 316, there's more love for us to know and enjoy and admire and be amazed at and be thankful for and be strengthened by. Those of us who believe who Jesus is and what he has done, God wants us to know ourselves loved, not only with this world-encompassing love, but with a life-giving, grace-giving love. There's a difference. We in our lostness are absolutely undeserving of God's love. And the Bible says we are so spiritually dead in our sin that we on our own would never have responded to God's offer of salvation given in John 3.16. On our own, you would not do that. I would not do that. I would not respond to that love. So what has God done? He's loved us with a death-conquering, hardness-removing, rebellion-eradicating, sight-imparting, personal, individual, invincible, faith-creating kind of love. We were dead. Romans 6.23 said that, right? We were dead. And what does God do? He loves us to life. This love is called the great love. Holy Spirit tells us about it in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of what, church? The great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, By grace you have been saved, made us alive by grace, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this, this faith is not your own doing, it is the what? It's the gift of God. It's the gift of His love. Not a result of works so that no one can boast. (laughs) This is the great love, isn't it? This is the great love that goes way beyond offering to, to spiritually dead people the opportunity to believe in Jesus and be saved. This love conquers our deadness. It brings us to faith. It unites us to Jesus. It gives us new life. And all in one sovereign, saving, catching instant. It's the perfect catch for a fallen sinner like you and like me. Amen and amen. Let me read this again. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great 
love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Jesus. God's quickening love made you alive, made me alive, imparting to us the faith required to believe. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This isn't your doing. It's a gift from God. That's why you and I are able to believe. It didn't come from us. It came from God. We were loved with the great love of God expressed in an amazing grace. Oh, praise be to God who would love us to such a degree. Amen. And then notice that there's a promise that God attaches to his love in verse 16. It's, it's here in verse 17. Again, it shows up in verse 18. Just to ensure that we don't miss it. Three times we get this promise. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish. You won't perish. That's a promise. But you'll have eternal life. For God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world. You're not going to be condemned. But in order that the world might be saved through him, whoever believes in him is not condemned. Some versions say not judged. In other words, church family, to those who come to God on his terms through repentance and simple faith, Jesus gives this marvelous promise. You will never perish. You will never be condemned to an eternity without God. You will never stand before the holy judge of heaven and hear him say, guilty, depart from me, I never knew you. You will never experience that or hear that. How does that make you feel? Loved? (laughs) Loved? The guarantee given by Jesus here to those who possess eternal life is that they never perish. Genuine salvation can never be lost if it's genuine. If it's not merely intellectual agreement or a a casual religious, I believe in God, which we hear all the time. I believe in God. That's not saving faith. True believers in Jesus are going to be divinely preserved and will faithfully persevere because they've been kept by God's power. There are a mountain of passages that affirm our security in Jesus Christ when our faith is genuine. How about this one from Romans chapter 8? There is therefore now, what church? No condemnation. You know what that word means? No sentence of punishment. Therefore is, there is therefore now no sentence of punishment for those who are in Christ Jesus. Verse 33 of Romans 8. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. You know what that word means? Pronounce not guilty. It is God who pronounces us not guilty in the court of heaven. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us right now. Who's representing you before God? The best defender of them all, right? That's the promise of 316. It's just expressed a little bit differently. How about John 5, 24? 
a place that we're going to eventually get to in our study series. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has what? Eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. That's a promise from Jesus, and he never breaks a promise. How about John 6:37? Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And how about John 12, 47? Jesus says, I didn't come to judge the world, but to save it. To save it. God will judge those who reject his son. That judgment, however, was not the mission of Jesus at his first coming. He came to save. And we say, Amen. Amen. Now, sadly, the greater part of the world, the greater part of sinful fallen mankind, does not want the salvation that God is offering to us in Jesus. And the consequence of that is tragic beyond our imaginations. Jesus says in verse 18, Whoever believes in me is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is what, church? Already condemned. Already condemned because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Jesus did not come into a neutral world, a spiritually neutral world with the result that some people moved from neutrality and decided to become anti-Jesus, while others moved from being spiritually neutral and decided to become pro-Jesus. Nobody was neutral. Agreed? Nobody is neutral. Again, we have all what? We've all sinned. We're all guilty. We're all perishing. Therefore, we're all under God's righteous judgment. We are already condemned. Whether we stay that way depends on how we respond to Jesus, right? He came not to make neutral people into pro-Jesus people. Again, nobody's neutral. He did not come to make neutral people into pro-Jesus people. He came to make spiritually dead people alive. He came to make guilty people not guilty. He came to make condemned people pardoned people. He came to make the perishing eternally alive to provide the perfect catch for us. All of us who are hurtling towards certain death. God doesn't owe us acquittal. He doesn't, he doesn't owe us pardon. He doesn't owe us life. Sin condemns us all. That Jesus came to offer life and some accept it. Why, what is that? That's pure grace flowing out of the love of God. While the final sentencing of those who reject Jesus is still future, that judgment will merely serve to complete what has already begun. And that's what Jesus is saying. The judgment has already begun. The lost are condemned because they have not believed in. In fact, literally that Greek word means believed into his son whom God has sent. Saving faith goes, as we just mentioned a moment ago, beyond mere intellectual assent to the facts about Jesus. It requires an admission of sin 
a genuine repentance, a brokenness over what I am in myself, a denial of all trust in myself to save myself, a true submission to the word of God and to Jesus as my Lord. And only genuine faith produces this new birth that Jesus talked about in verse 7 of chapter 3. The result, a transformed heart and an obedient life. Well, Jesus closes out his time with his night visitor Nicodemus by summarizing their conversation this way. Verse 19. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. Jesus himself being that light. The very presence of God. And John says this in 1 John 1, 5. God is light. In him is no darkness at all. That's God. When Jesus put on flesh and dwelt among us, God's spiritual light came into our sin-dark world. When Jesus came, the truth came with him. The truth about God. The truth about ourselves. The truth about the way to, to salvation. The truth about what is good and what is beautiful. The truth about what is sin and what is death. And the truth about how we ought to live. And the truth about right thinking and right feeling and, and right doing. All defined by the light that is in God. And in Jesus. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And people loved the what? They loved the darkness rather than the light. Because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light. And does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. When the light of Jesus begins to shine on a person's life. It must either break them and lead them to repentance and faith or it drives them further into the dark. That's the way it is. It's, it's intolerable for, for sinful works and thoughts to feel the light, to be exposed to the truth of, of Jesus. Sin is so ugly, it's so monstrous, so hideous that it has to surround itself with darkness. It must live in illusion. It must live in deceit. It hates the light. It loves the darkness. It's not going to come to the light. Jesus is actually describing, I believe, in verses 19 and 20, the inner working of unbelief, how unbelief actually works. I got a vivid, real-life illustration of this one day at my house. I had thrown an old rubber entryway mat that you'd have at your front door. It had worn out, and so I'd, I'd thrown it out beside the wood pile at my house, intending to then take it to the dump, but I forgot about it. And so it laid out there on the ground for several weeks. Well, one day I went to the dump, and I remembered that mat, and I went over, and I, I, I lifted that mat up. And it was amazing, church family. It was amazing. It was like the ground came alive in that moment with all of these creepy, crawly bugs as I lifted up that mat. I mean, worms and centipedes and beetles and, and something that I don't, I'd never seen before. <laughs> and it would just look nasty. And, and it was all moving. You know, it was something like something out of a horror movie. 
You see, everything was great for all of those critters under that mat until I lifted the mat and exposed them to the what? To the light. And then there was this mad dash, all of them trying to, to run for cover and find some darkness. The sinful heart, Jesus says, is, is like that in relationship to him. It will not come to Jesus. And, and that, says Jesus, is the judgment. This response of loving the darkness and hating the light reveals that the guilt of not coming to Jesus lies in our hearts. It lies in us. We don't come because we don't want to come. And we only come when the love of God breaks in and changes our heart by His grace. Jesus is digging into our souls and explaining why some believe and why some don't believe. He's describing the kind of judgment that that really happens when His light shines in a dark world. It turns out that those who are condemned in this judgment are condemned by what they love. They love the darkness. And they want to stay in the darkness. Those who are rescued from this judgment are rescued not by their own clever goodness or righteousness or doing. They are rescued by the love of God and the grace of God alone. Verse 21. Whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out, two most important words in this verse, in God. God did it. God did it. What Jesus is saying to Nicodemus and to us, he's saying there is a kind of judgment that came into the world with him. God's light, truth came into the world and this judgment exposes the heart. The fallen heart loves the darkness, but from the loving heart of God comes a grace, salvation and eternal life. Unbelief is our fault. Belief in Jesus is God's gift. It's his doing that it may be clearly seen that our works have been carried out in God, by God. God gets all the credit. Amen? For your salvation and mine, it's all God. We're all falling, hurtling towards certain death, eternal and forever, a falling that we are powerless to arrest. But then God in and through Jesus places a net of love and grace beneath us and he provides the perfect catch. Can we read it together, church family? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Let's pray together. Oh, Holy Spirit, you have put a feast before us this morning in your word. Way more truth than we could begin to unpack in the short time that we've had here together. But perhaps enough that our hearts overflow with a great gratitude to you. Lord God, Jesus, Holy Spirit, for this amazing thing called salvation through faith in you. 
If there is anyone in this room this morning who has yet to embrace the truth of John 3.16, now's the time. Today is the day. Don't let another day pass in your life without giving Jesus your life, without allowing his love to flow into your life and change your heart, make you brand new, make you a participant in these promises of no perishing, no condemnation, no judgment ever. Because Jesus has borne it all for you. You say, how can I be saved? Just tell God, I'm a sinner and I need Jesus. He'll take care of the rest. If you make that decision today, don't leave here without telling someone. Let us help you begin this journey with Jesus. And now, Heavenly Father, it is a joy for us as a church family to gather at the table. For us, Lord Jesus, to remember what it cost for us to have this eternal life. It cost you your life. The table allows us to remember your death for us. The bread, a symbol of your body, which hung on the cross. Your, the, the, the cup, a symbol of your blood poured out. The payment price for our redemption. And so as we gather here at the table, may we gather with hearts that are right and ready to give you glory as we remember this amazing gift. You've loved us so much. Allow us to express our love back to you in this way. As a church family, we'll say thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.